Well, good morning, Rocky Peak. Feels like summer out there, doesn't it? It's a beautiful day. It's nice because when it's like that out there, you're always more awake when you get in here. And uh, it's good to see you. My name is Michael. I'm one of the pastors. And if it's your very first time here, I uh, want to welcome you, whether you're here or over in the Ridge um, venue. Uh, we're going to go into our time of teaching right now, um, but before we do, I just want to mention, you know, this week is 4th of July, isn't it? And um, we want to celebrate that uh, as a church. We want to be praying for our, our country, our nation. I don't know about you, but I'm so thankful uh, to be a part of this nation, uh, and I'm also so concerned for the direction of this nation. And, uh, you know, in the, in the Bible, it says that as, as followers of Jesus, we're to be the light of the world. Uh, that by our good, our good works, uh, the lives that we live, that we would be kind of leading the path. And so this is such an important time in the life of our nation that as believers all over this nation, that as Paul says in Philippians 2, that we would be shining like lights in a dark sky. And so uh, we want to pray for our nation today. And I don't know about you, but whenever I pray for our nation, I always start with a prayer of repentance because uh, we are a nation in rebellion. And uh, until we come under the leadership of our king, uh, we can't expect blessing, right? So uh, there, there needs to be uh, a spirit of repentance in our nation, and we as believers need to be leading the way, amen? So uh, we're going to be praying for that, but uh, then right after that, we're going to be going into our time of teaching, and inside your note sheet, uh, your uh, program, is a green and white note sheet. So if you're here for the very first time, you may not know that, you want to pull that out, you'll definitely want to uh, have this as we, as we go into this time of teaching. So you guys ready to go? Let's pray. Father, we thank you uh, for this day, just beautiful day, uh, as we are able, as we kind of enter in this summer, and we just feel the warmth of that sun coming through, warming us up, and we're so thankful to be here in your presence, in your place, underneath your leadership, and uh, seeking you together as a church, as we gather around your word to experience you together, to hear your voice, to learn how to listen, to learn how to follow. But today, uh, Father, this is a very important week in the life of our nation, um, it's a, a week we celebrate the liberties that we have, the freedom that we have. And so, Father, we want to bring our nation. Your word says that we are to pray for kings and for governors and those in authority that we might live in peace. And we want to pray uh, for our leaders. We want to pray for our nation. And, Father, we want to stand before you, first of all, as your people and your place. We ask for mercy and forgiveness for us as a nation, the way we've rebelled against you in so many ways. Uh, and we just pray for a spirit of truth and clarity to come upon our nation. We pray that as believers, whether it's here or around this country, that you be raising up uh, leaders, you be raising up uh, pastors, you be raising up churches to lead the way, that we would be uh, a light in a dark place. And that as we, uh, we pray for a spirit of repentance to be over our land, that we might come under your leadership, bow the knee, uh, turn back to you, that we might be under your blessing again. And then today, as we come, Father, to your word today, just so excited about this passage as we continue this series. We pray that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things from your law that we might be transformed by it. We pray this in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. amen. Well, today our story starts in Europe. It's a, uh, it's a cosmopolitan city and on this day, frankly, as he gets up, he's a little bit nervous. And uh, the reason is, is that he's received a summons to appear before the court. And uh, all the charges haven't been laid out, but he's pretty sure they're going to be serious and um, that they're, they're going to be very life-threatening. And, uh, and so he's not sure exactly what's going to be said or what's going to be happening, but uh, he knows that he is in danger. 
And so that morning, he's preparing his mind, his thoughts for what will he say when the time comes, when the time when the judge turns to him to give his defense to the accusations that come, what will he say? And as he walks there with several of his friends and heads towards the courthouse, his heart is uh, a mixture of uh, kind of peace and yet concern. And, uh, and so his big concern is that he doesn't know this particular judge. Um, this judge is new to the area, and uh, he's not sure whether the judge will be more concerned with truth or with politics. And so he's convinced that he will be able to give an adequate defense, that he's innocent of the charges that they will be bringing. But his concern is, will the judge care? And so as the case begins to unfold, then it's time for him to to stand up and give his defense. The judge suddenly says something that he never saw coming. Well, today, we are continuing a series that we've been in for eight or nine weeks now that's called Metamorphosis Face-to-Face. And for those of you who are new, this is a a series that's uh, based on a letter from one of the the key leaders, the early movement of Jesus. We call him Paul, the Apostle Paul. And about five or six years earlier, he had gone to this particular city and he had shared the message of Jesus, stayed there for 18 months. And uh, many people had come to Christ, the church had been born, and now he's been away for a while. So he's writing them back on how to follow Jesus. And so we call this, uh, this, this city is in Southern Greece. We call it Southern Greece today. It was called the ancient city of Corinth. And so we call this letter the second letter to the Corinthians. And in the letter, the reason why we call this metamorphosis a series is because in this letter, one of the key words that he uses to describe God's vision of transformation for our life is this word uh, in Greek, metamorpho. And it's where we get our word metamorphosis from, which is, you know, a word that we use to describe slow, gradual, profound, even radical change, like a, a caterpillar to a butterfly, something like that. But it's also the word that Paul will use in this letter to describe God's vision for our lives when a man or woman comes to Jesus and enters into a supernatural change process led by God's Spirit. We enter into a face-to-face relationship with God through His Spirit, and as we learn to listen and follow, we are transformed to become the people we were created to be, people like Jesus. And so today we come to the next important uh, topic in this chapter, or in this uh, letter. We come to chapter 5. And so if you have your Bibles, you have your uh, apps, let's go ahead and open up and turn those on to chapter 5. We're actually going to dip back briefly into chapter 4. There on your note sheet is a section called Metamorphosis of Future Focus. And you'll notice we're actually going to start at verse uh, 16 just to set up the, the context. So let's set the stage. Uh, If you were here last week, Fred was teaching, we saw that once again, Paul is defending himself. One of the big issues, it's always in the backdrop of this letter, is that Paul is being criticized by many in Corinth. Many are questioning his authority, his leadership, whether he is truly an apostle, uh, someone sent by Jesus Christ, whether he speaks with Jesus' authority, whether his teaching should be listened and followed. And one of the major reasons why they're, uh, why they're struggling with this is that Paul's life, as we've often said in this series, it's, it's often a mess. And he's often being arrested, chased out of a city as a persona non grata, 
uh, uh, imprisoned, beaten, hungry, often poorly clothed. He's not exactly, uh, you know, your image of success, especially in the, the Corinthian culture. And so there are many that are asking the question, how can God really be with this man? How can he really be an apostle for Jesus when he's always being arrested, beaten, always in trouble? Um, it doesn't seem like the blessing of God is on his life. And so Paul's answer has been, no, that I'm a follower of Jesus, and as an apostle of Jesus, I'm following the same path of persecution that Jesus followed. That his life, the resurrection power, wasn't seen until he went through the crucifixion. And he said, in our life as believers, it's not by avoiding all hard times that we see the power of God. It's by God empowering us in the hard times to show the resurrection life of Jesus. So he says, as believers, we need to be focused not on this life which is seen, but on the next life that's coming that's unseen. And so that's where we're picking up the story at the end of chapter four and verse 16. And he says, therefore, we do not lose heart. In other words, as apostles um, who are being persecuted for Jesus, we don't lose heart. We don't give up. Though outwardly in our physical bodies, we are wasting away. You know, our bodies are being thrashed. Yet inwardly, we are being renewed, you know, by the Holy Spirit day by day, by his power. For light and momentary troubles, we'll come back to that later, are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So, you know, as apostles, we fix our eyes not on what is seen, the physical life, our imprisonments, the beatings, and so on, but on what is unseen, on what's coming in the next life, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. All right, so that's where we left off last week. Now, I wanna do a quick sidebar. Dre got a sidebar, I get my sidebar. Um, I want to point out that when you're reading the Bible, remember, it's always important to remember that when the Bible was written, there were no verses or chapter markers. Those were written, those were included much, much later just to help us find our way around. They're very helpful, but they're often come at very inopportune times. So often, like if you're reading your Bible, a chapter a day keeps the devil away, that kind of thing that you are often stopping right in the middle of an argument, uh, right in the middle of the flow of thought. And this is a great example because Paul's not done at the end of chapter four, uh, that five just comes in a really awkward spot. So it says in verse 18, we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. And then he says four, for this reason, for we know, you know, why can we be so future focused? Why, why can we not be focused on this physical damage being done to our bodies? Like what, why, why can we be so focused on what's coming next? He says, well, the reason is for we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven. So what he's saying is he's, he's using a, a metaphor, an analogy. He's comparing our current human bodies to a tent. Uh, think Coleman, right? <laughs> Coleman tent. Uh, no, actually think Bedouin, but that's something else. He says our, our current body is like a tent. It's a temporary dwelling. One day it will be t the tent will be taken down. But he said, when that tent is taken down in its place, we will get a building like a new real home, right? So he's comparing our current bodies 
to the future body. He says, that's, that's why we can, it's, it's not that big a deal what happens to our bodies right now because we're getting a new model and it's an upgrade, right? And he says, it's not built with human hands. Now, he says, meanwhile, while we're still in this body, we groan. Can anyone relate to that? <laughs> yeah, I can right now. My hand's still groaning. Um, Meanwhile, we groan, and, and the reason is we long to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling. That's what we're looking forward to the day we move out of the Coleman tent into our new home. And he said, because when we're clothed, we will not be found what? Naked. That's interesting. Paul sometimes does this. He will switch metaphors. He'll mix his metaphors. So he's been comparing our bodies to a tent that are going to be torn down and replaced by a house. And now in the midst of that, he just switches the metaphor and talks about this house we're going to be clothed with, like a new set of clothing. So if he was in English class, he'd be graded down. But we can follow, <laughs> but we follow his line of thought. Uh, he says, when we're clothed, we'll not be found naked. Now we may come back and talk about that naked piece later and talk about what he's talking about. It's so funny this week, it's crazy. But I saw this was like, this week it was like National Naked Backpacking Day, you know? <laughs> And I'm reading through my flipboard thing, you know, and all of a sudden I'm coming up with these guys with backpacks and bare buns. And I'm telling you, all I could do is just thank God I was in the Sierras this week. It was like, that's a new kind of bear, if you know what I mean. But, all right, so verse four. So while we're in this tent, so he's back to the tent analogy. We groan and we're burdened because, not, because we don't wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with this new heavenly dwelling, this new house, so that what's mortal may be swallowed up by what? By life. That the mortal may be swallowed up by Im, the immortal, by life. Now, the one who's fashioned us for this, kind of prepared us for this very purpose, is God who's given us the Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. Now, this is a very important New Testament teaching, that the Holy Spirit is a deposit guaranteeing our future. And you say, well, what do you mean? Well, we all understand how a deposit works, right? Like this, this week we sold our uh, car. It's a 1997 Pathfinder, right? And, uh, and we sold it uh, to a guy in Illinois, right? He wanted an older vehicle without rust, so you come to California. And since he called me from Illinois, you're thinking shady, right? This is Craigslist, right? This thing is shady. So he tells me on the phone, he says, listen, I really want this. I will give you a deposit. I'll send you a deposit for $500 right now. Now, why is he doing that? He's doing that to show me that he's good for the rest of the money. And he's going to give me $500 now so that I'll hold the car for him so that he'll come and pay me the rest. And Paul uses that as an analogy. He says, when a man or woman comes to Jesus and you receive the Holy Spirit, it's like you're receiving the life of heaven now. It's like you're receiving the Spirit of Jesus now. And he begins to transform our life. We begin to experience the power of the age to come here and now. And that experience with the Holy Spirit in our life here and now is what guarantees us that God will come and transform our bodies as well and bring this, and pay the full price, if you will, bring the full transformation then. And so he says um, in verse uh, six, therefore, we're always confident, 
Paul says, as apostles, apostles who are being persecuted, we're confident and we know that as long as we are at home in the body, in this current body, that we are away from the Lord. That's just the facts. For we live by faith and not by sight. In other words, we're, yes, on the outside, we're being persecuted. We're in prison. It looks like we're losing, but we know what the future is. We're living by faith in that future, not by sight of what it looks like on the surface right now. And he says, uh, verse 8, we're confident, I say, and honestly, we would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. That would be my first choice. And he said, but so we make it our goal in life, our top priority to please him. You know, this is be, because we know this next life is coming and it's very real. Uh, we make it our goal to please him, whether we're at home in the body or away from it. And the reason is we almost appear before the judgment seat of Christ, every one of us, so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in this mortal body, whether good or bad. And he says, since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. So, Paul, why do you do what you do? Why are you willing to go through such hardships, through such persecution? It's because I know the future is very real, and it's coming. And one day, every one of us is going one-on-one -on -one with Jesus, and that's, that's enough to put the fear of God in you. Like we, he said, so doing whatever, so what we're doing is we're doing everything we can to persuade every person we meet so that they'll be ready for that day when they stand before Jesus, right? So that's the passage. Now, from this passage, I want to highlight three key principles that flow out about um, God's vision for our lives, this ultimate transformation that happens uh, in the next life, and uh, what it looks like to live this day for that day. So there on your note sheet, you have a section called Metamorphosis, the Next Life. And so three things, uh, three, three points uh, that we want to highlight. Number one, the first principle is that when it comes to the next life, you know, like what's going to happen next? What happens after this life? There's some things in the Bible that are very clear. So some things are very clear. As we'll see in a minute, not all things. But some things are very clear. And you say, well, so what what does Paul tell us? What does the New Testament teach us about the next life? Some things are very clear. I want to highlight for you under this point three things that are very clear, all right? So the first thing that's very clear in this passage, in the New Testament, in the Bible, is that uh, there is life after death, right? That there is life after death. In other words, that this life is not the end. We will go on. Now, it's interesting because as many of us are Christ followers here, that we kind of take this for granted, but it's very interesting. We live in a culture where this is increasingly being challenged today. Uh, we live in a culture that's increasingly, um, based on its kind of uh, evolutionary biological assumptions, uh, kind of naturalistic assumptions, that that all there, that there is no such thing as a human soul. The soul and the brain are the same thing. So when the brain stops, the soul stops. And so if you, if you, if you read through literature today, uh, newspapers, media, increasingly, this is a point of view that there is no such thing as a you, that when your brain stops, you stop. There is no future that we live in a materialistic world and that all that you call consciousness, all that you call you is really just a result 
of uh, random brain waves, and that when that stops, you're gone. There is no future for you. But if you look at the history of our race, that for most peoples at most times, there has been an intuitive sense that there's something more. Um, it's interesting, in the book of Ecclesiastes, this is not on your note sheet, but in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse 11, uh, Solomon writes that God has placed eternity in our hearts. And it's interesting, we don't really know as you go look back at that passage of what exactly was Solomon saying, but it seems what he's saying is that there's something about the way we're wired as human beings that we want to know how our lives fit in the larger story. There's something in our lives that want to be more, that we want to be attached to something more than just this life and our life, that there's something more. And throughout human history, it doesn't matter whether it's the Egyptians or the Greeks, or the Babylonians, or the Romans, or the Persians, the vast majority of people throughout human history have senses and believe that there is life after death. The interesting thing is, though, it wasn't really until Jesus came that we knew this was true, for sure. Uh, it's interesting, I'm gonna give you another verse that's also not on your note sheet, but you might wanna jot this down for later. 2 Timothy 1.10, and Paul makes this statement. He says that when Jesus came, catch this, he destroyed death and he brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. That through the coming of Jesus, we now know someone who went to the other side and returned to tell us, right? And so, uh, so one of the basic assumptions of Jesus, one of the basic assumptions of uh, Paul, the, all the New Testament writers, the apostles, is that there is life after death. The Bible's super clear and everything it teaches, like I often say this, you cannot begin to understand the teaching of Jesus unless you understand that he lived his whole life with the consciousness there is a next life and this life is to be lived for the next life. Number two, the second thing that we know that's very clear is that the next life is physical. And this is interesting because even sometimes for us Christians, we get a little uh, wishy-washy on this. Um, sometimes we think of the next life as very ethereal, clouds and uh, playing clouds on, and uh, you know uh, playing harps on clouds. Um, you know when Hollywood represents like the next life or angels, they often miss out the camera, right? So you're looking through; it's this very ethereal, cloud-like world. And what the Bible teaches is the next world is more solid, more physical, more real than this world. That this is, as C.S. Lewis described, this is shadowlands. That is the real. And you see this in a wide variety of ways, but what's interesting, in the first century, this was very radical teaching. If you study historically, the only people, and they weren't all on the same page, but the only people who believed that the next life would be physical, physical bodies, physical universe, the only people were the Jews, and not even all the Jews. Remember, the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. Uh, but the, vast, the, 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 the majority opinion in the Roman world when Paul was teaching, when Jesus was teaching, was that yes, there's life after death, but not physical life after death. In fact, in Greek philosophy uh, that was taken on by the Romans, the body was often seen as our enemy. 
Think of how our body gets into this in so many troubles in sin. And so in Greek thought, why would you ever want to get a new body in the next life? What you want to do is get unclothed from your body. You want to get naked so that you can live life to the full. And this is very likely what Paul is referring to. He says, we groan in this current body, not because we want to be naked, like done with our body, but because we want to be clothed with the new model. We want the, we want the new version. So this is something they had struggled with a lot in Corinth because they were coming out of their Greek culture. And so there were many in Corinth who were struggling with this concept of an embodied future existence, new heavens, new earth, physical world. In fact, this is why in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul wrote a long, one of the longest chapters in the New Testament to describe why the resurrection of Jesus was physical, why that's so important. And what he says is, don't you get it? God's vision is to restore all of creation. The whole creation went into a death spiral when the leaders of creation, the first man, the first woman, rebelled against God. Not only did they die, the whole creation died. This is why God became man, one of us, so that he could conquer sin and death and then rise from the day physical as the first step to raise the whole physical universe. So this is what Paul says there in, um, on your note sheet, in 1 Corinthians 15, that first letter he wrote to them about 18 months before this, 12, 18 months before. He says, uh, this is why the death of Jesus is so important. It's not just about Jesus, it's about all of us. And he says, Christ has been raised from the dead and he is the first of the great harvest. In the Greek, it actually says first fruits. Now, we all know what first fruits are, right? When the first part of the crop comes in. Like right now, cherries are coming in. Len's bringing home, uh, you know, these plastic things of cherries from Costco. And I am so excited because I know when I first see the first bin of cherries, it's the first of many more in the yearly household. Like, it's the first fruits of cherry season, right? And so when you see the first fruits, you know more is coming. And Paul says Jesus is the first fruits of this physical resurrection that's coming. So it says he's the first of a great harvest of all who have died. So you see, just as death came into the world through a man, through the first man, Adam, now the resurrection from the dead has begun through another man. And so, so this is the second thing that Paul is building on this teaching of 1 Corinthians. And he says, we... Why are we willing to go through what we're willing to go through? Why are we willing to have our bodies beaten and torn? And he said, because we know that we're getting a new model that's as much better as a, uh, as, as a model like a house is to a tent. And uh, it's going to be more physical, more permanent, uh, stronger. Uh, in one of his uh, uh, kind of allegories, C.S. Lewis talked about this uh, bus ride of people that got to go to the next life to heaven and uh, it was just so solid up there, they couldn't handle it. The, uh, when you'd walk on the grass, it, it felt like diamonds. It was just so solid. And it's a beautiful description of the reality of the next life, the new heavens and the new earth. Not less physical, more physical, more real, more solid. As much as a house is more solid than a tent. The third thing that's really clear about the next life is that it's amazing. 
Now, this is one of those things that I wish the Bible gave us more details. We're going to talk about this in a minute. It doesn't give us all the details we want, but whenever the New Testament writers talk about the next life, they, they talk in superlatives. It's like words begin to fail. Uh, we see that a couple examples here. Um, Paul talks about our new bodies, right? And he compares them from a tent to a house. Now, I want you to imagine this. I want you to imagine that your whole life you've lived in the San Fernando Valley. Some of you say that. I don't have to imagine that. That's true. But, uh, and, and so you've lived here your whole life, and you've lived your whole life here in a Coleman tent. All right? And I just want you to picture that. All right, so you know what that looks like? If you live in Woodland Hills, it's about to get 118, right? And so you, you've got, you're going to be 118 in a tent in Woodland Hills, and you've got no indoor plumbing, and you've got, um, you, you've got you know, no air conditioning except the flap that opens. Um, and, then, and then, of course, it turns into fire season. Now you're moving your tent all over the place, um, trying to keep your tent from burning down. And then you uh, move into the winter and the rains come, uh, and then the winds come, right? And they're going to blow your tent down. And, uh, and then it's back to summer again, right? So this has been your life for 30 years, for 40 years, for 50. You've lived in, in a tent. Now imagine you've lived in your tent your whole life, and now someone says, hey, we have bought this incredible uh, home for you. It's free of charge. It's in this gated community. Uh, over in this part of the valley, that's an upgrade, right? That's an upgrade. You're like, are you kidding me? We've got air conditioning. We've got heat. We no longer, the rain doesn't come through the roof anymore. Uh, that we don't have to move all the time. The wind doesn't blow our tent over. Like this is an incredible upgrade. And what I want you to catch is just that Paul is comparing. He says, this life, our bodies are like a tent. Now, probably in his mind, more like a Bedouin tent, more like a leather tent, but, but they're like a tent, and we're going to get a building, right? We're going to get our own house. So you can see the, the analogy. Um, but one of the ways that you see how, how amazing the next life is, is how Paul compares the trouble that he's facing in his current life as an apostle to the future, and this is amazing. This, frankly, this blows my mind. I can't even begin to wrap my, uh, my head around this. But there in your note sheet, I put this passage from uh, chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians. It's the one we read, we started the day with. But I wanted to put it here to make it easy. So it says, Paul says, therefore, we do not lose heart. We don't get discouraged. Because though outwardly we're wasting away all these beatings, imprisonments, and so on, Inwardly, we're being renewed day by day. And then he says, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory. Interesting, this is written in Greek, but in Hebrew, you know, Paul thinks Hebrew, uh, the word for glory is kavod, which means weight. So it's kind of like he's weight, he's using like a, a weight upon weight an eternal glory or weight that far outweighs them all. He says, okay, so 
their issue is, Paul, how can you be an apostle? You're always being beat up. You're always being chased out of town. You're naked. You're, uh, you're poor. You don't look like God is with you. He's like, no, no, no. This is the way of Jesus. We're following in the way of Jesus. His power is revealed in our life, not by avoiding hard times, but by the overcoming power to live through them and continue to love Jesus and share Jesus. And he says, so what we do is we focus on what's coming next, this next life. And he said, honestly, what we're going through is like light and momentary compared to this incredible future that's coming. And it's easy for us to read that and to miss it completely. And I want you to think about this. When I think of a light and momentary trouble in my life, I think of having a flat tire. I think of light and momentary trouble, I think of running out of gas. I think maybe it's bigger. Maybe it's losing a job, being out of work for you. That's, uh, maybe it's me going through this accident I went through and tearing my hand up and beating my head up. And it's like, it's still like, yeah, but in the scope of things, light and moment, I can get there. But I want you to remember who's writing this. And I want you to take your Bibles, keep your place here, but go to, to back a few chapters to chapter 11. When you get to chapter 11, Paul's going to be defending himself still, this time against some uh, false teachers that have come to town claiming to be these amazing apostles, and he's being forced to compare his resume with theirs, not that he wants to. And in verse 23, he says, are they servants of Christ? He said, I'm out of my mind to talk like this. I am more. And then he begins giving some of his resume. I have worked much harder I've been in prison more frequently. I've been flogged more severely. That's like, that's whipped, right? Now, this is, he's, what he's describing is his light and momentary troubles. I've been flogged more severely. I've been exposed to death again and again. Five times I've received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one when the Jews would whip you for blasphemy or whatever, the theory was 40 would kill you, so we'll do 40 minus one. So five times. Imagine the scars. I mean, I hurt my hand, I can hardly move it from the scar tissue. Anytime it's gonna take a year to get this thing back, a year of hard work. And think of the scars of 40, your back. Your legs, your buttocks, your thighs, think of that. Three times I was beaten with rods. This is how the Romans, uh, they wouldn't use lashes, they would beat you with rods. Like when Paul was arrested in Philippi and beaten before he was thrown into prison, we studied that uh, last year. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. This was outside Lystra, like Acts 14, something like that, and it's, uh, he was left for dead, he was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. We only know one from the book of Acts, but it actually happened three times. I spent a night and day in the open sea, just treading water or holding onto a plank, not knowing if he was gonna live or die. I'm constantly in the move. I've been in the danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews. This would make an ob- a great like, reality TV show. Uh, in danger from Gentiles, we could just call it danger, re- danger reality. <laughs> in danger in the country, in danger at sea, in danger from false believers. I've labored, I've toiled, I've often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst. I've often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. 
That's an example of what Paul calls light and momentary troubles. Now, when I read that, I like, how in the world can you call it light and momentary? To me, it seems like it's going on forever and really heavy. He says, yeah, but Michael, you haven't seen what's coming like I have. And if you had, you would see this is nothing in comparison. One thing that the New Testament is super clear on is the next life is incredible. It makes me think of what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 2, also not on your note sheet back, where he said, eye has not seen, ear has not heard. It's not even entered into the mind of man what God has prepared for those who love him. Blows your mind beyond imagination, all right? So some things in the Bible are, about the next life, really clear. These are three. There's life after death, it's physical life after death, and it's incredible. Now, that leads to number two, though. The second point, which will go faster, is that other things are less than clear. I don't know about you, but I'm often frustrated when I read the Bible because I want to know more. All right, so it's incredible, and so it's physical, Um, But could you give me a little bit more detail? Like, what are we going to be doing forever, for example? Um, And so I I know it's not the harps on the clouds thing. And and to be honest, there are many hints and clues in the New Testament. Uh, A life of growth, a life of ruling, a life of work and administration and, you know, uh, impact. And there's a lot of, like, cool things that we, we can piece together. If we had time here, we could... Spend an hour doing that. But it's not as clear as I would like. And the reason why is because the Bible was written that is answering questions and addressing issues to the people it was written to. And this passage is a great example. In this passage, Paul is not, here's all the questions about the next life. I want to answer them. What Paul is responding to is if you're really an apostle, why is life so hard and how do you deal with that? That's what he's answering. And so uh, what you see in the Bible is that some things are super clear about the next life, but other things are less than clear. Let me give you a great example from this passage of one thing that's less than clear. If you only have this passage of scripture uh, at least to me, it gives the impression that the moment you die, you receive a new body on the other side. Uh, like Paul says, he says that uh, if our earthly tent is torn down or taken down, that we have a heavenly dwelling made without hands. It sounds like there's an immediate transition. You take down the one, you get the other. The challenge with that, though, is that in other passages in the New Testament, from Paul himself, it sounds as if this transition will happen when Jesus comes back. I think 1 Thessalonians 4. Uh, we'll look at one here in Philippians 3. Look at Philippians chapter 3. In Philippians 3, um, it says that our citizenship is in heaven as Christians, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, all of creation, heaven and earth, 
He will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. So this seems to be describing a time when Jesus will return, bring all creation healed and restored, new heavens, new earth, and as part of that, he'll transform our bodies to be like his body. We will get our new version when this happens, right? And so this is a great example of something that's less than clear. Like at what point do we get our new bodies And if, say, we don't get them until Jesus returns, then what do we get in the meantime? You know, do you get like a rental unit? Uh, Less than clear. And you can argue both ways, but it's like kind of less than clear. And so what I want you to catch here is some things very clear, other things less than clear. But one thing that is very clear is that the neck, whatever happens, the moment you die, it is an upgrade. And the reason it's an upgrade is because we will be with our creator at last. And there in your note sheet, you see this from the passage we study today, 2 Corinthians 5, very clear. We're confident, I would say, and Paul says, we would prefer, in other words, it's an upgrade to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Or similarly, in Philippians 1, remember in Philippians, he's writing, uh, he's writing from prison He doesn't know whether he'll be uh, retained, released, or executed. And he's really struggling with what do I pray for, what do I want? Because on the one hand, I know that if I'm released, it will lead to fruitful labor. I'll be able to share Jesus, people will come to Christ, but life's going to be hard. I'm I'm an apostle, I'm going to suffer. Or I could go and be with Jesus now. And he said, honestly, I'd prefer just to go be with him. That would be better. And so he says, um, if I go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet, what shall I choose? You know, I don't even know. He said, I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ. That's better by far. So what's, what's uh, clear, next life is real. Uh, it's uh, physical, new heavens, new earth, and it is amazing some things are less than clear. What are we going to be doing there? We've got hints, we've got nods, we've got some ideas, but less than clear. Here's a great example of a less than clear of when exactly do we get that new body. Uh, you can kind of argue both ways. It has been, but it's less than clear. But this leads to number three. And number three is the, um, the bottom line. Number three is where Paul's going, that's where this message is going, and it goes like this, that the important thing is to get ready. The the driving point of this passage is, yeah, yeah, there are certain things that are clear. Next life is coming, it's real, it's physical, it's incredible. Uh, Certain things less clear, um, but the most important thing is that we get ready for this next life because it's coming. And this is what Paul says Uh, In 2 Corinthians 5, 9, and 10, there in your note sheet, he says, so, in other words, because this next life is coming, we make it our goal, like our top priority, to please him. Like if you had to take the the Apostle Paul and say, what's your driving force in your life? I'd say boil it all down to please him. And he said, so because we know this next life is coming, we make it our goal to please him, whether we're at home in the body or away from it. And here's why. We must all appear before the what? The judgment seat of Christ. Now, I want you to circle that phrase. We're going to come back to that. In the Greek, it's a single word. We're going to come back to that. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us, circle that, each of us. I'm doing a little dre that. I'm telling you to circle everything. (laughs) 
each of us, right, that this is not like a group project, right? This is not like uh, in uh, high school or college where you, were, uh, you did all your work in groups and then the only, if you were the good student, you did all the work and everyone got the grade. It's not like that. Uh, this is like one-on-one that each of us may receive what is due for the things done in this mortal body, here and now, whether good or bad. And so Paul is, says, hey, this is the point that the future is real, it's coming, and we need to live this day for that day because there's a day when you're gonna stand before Jesus one-on-one and your life is going to be evaluated. Now, Paul uses a very powerful analogy, image, metaphor in this passage that's easy for us to miss. And it deals with this phrase I had you circle, the judgment seat of Christ. And to understand this, we have to go back to the story we started the day with. So we started the day with the story of this man who wakes up a little bit nervous, been summoned to court, uh, not sure how it's going to go, assumes the charges will be serious. He knows he's innocent, but the problem is there's a new judge in town, not sure if he's more concerned with truth or if he's concerned with politics and uh, how this is going to play out. When it comes time to defend himself, the judge does something that blows him away, never saw coming. So this is a story from the life of the Apostle Paul. And many of you will remember this. When we started this series, Metamorphosis, then the very first week we spent some time talking about Corinth and the city of Corinth, and we talked about uh, Paul and how Paul came on his first visit, 18 months. And we talked that at one point in that 18 months, there was a conspiracy by some of the Jewish leaders, and they, they took him to court. And what had happened, there was a new judge in town. In fact, not just a judge, he was called the Roman proconsul. So the way that the uh, Corinth, remember, was the, the capital of the entire Roman province of Achaia. And they would rule that entire province by a governor that was called the proconsul. They would send from Rome, from the Roman Senate, who for one year would rule there. So he had come to town. These Jews think, hey, there's this new proconsul in town. We think this is a great opportunity. And so they bring Paul up on charge. Now, this man's name was Gallo. And we actually know him from secular history. Very famous guy. Um, He was uh, the brother of the famous Stoic philosopher Seneca that I've talked to you about before, contemporary of Paul. And so it's a very famous family. So Gallo comes and Paul is brought before him, and fortunately, uh, Gallo decides to throw the the case out of court. And it was a life-changing moment for Paul because the charges could have even brought a death penalty, and it would have certainly stopped his ministry in Corinth, but it was a very life-changing moment when the judge surprisingly said, I'm not even gonna hear this case. But there in your note sheet, it says uh, in Acts 18, it says, while Gallio was, um, well, Gallio was, was proconsul of Achaia, the province, the Jews of Corinth made a united judgment on Paul and they brought him to the circle, this to the place of judgment. So circle that, that is the exact same word in Greek as the judgment seat we saw earlier, right? Same word. It's a phrase in English, it's a word in Greek. The word is bema. And uh, in English, you spell it B-E-M-A, bema. And this was a very famous, remember, Corinth is the capital of the entire province. 
And this is, the Bema was in the Roman forum, and it was in public space, like they didn't do private courtrooms. This is where the proconsul would sit to hear cases, and where the truth would be brought out, and then he would rule on that case. It's interesting because when Lynn and I were in Corinth a few years ago, they have actually discovered the location of the Bema in Corinth. And I want to show you a couple of pictures. They're not very good. I'm not a professional photographer, but even there, it wasn't that good. But it just shows you that how interesting this that archaeologists have found the exact location, right? So we're going to look here. Uh, this is, you remember, there's the Acropolis, uh, uh, the Acro-Corinth. That's where the fortress to defend the city was. Remember, that's the mountain I climbed up on and kind of ran down with my flip-flops. Um, <laughs> And uh, that's where the temple of Aphrodite was. So what we're looking here in the foreground, we're in like the, the area of the city down below. Um, and so the next picture is going to be a picture of part of the Roman Forum. The, this is like the base of the Roman Forum. And you see a little plaque. You see that on the wall? Can you see that? Yeah. Okay, great. Let's go to the next slide. There we go. There is the Bema. Right. So this is where Paul was brought this is where cases were tried. That's good enough, guys, thanks. Uh, this was a very famous location where judgment was rendered. And what Paul is saying, he said, the, re he said the, the reason I'm willing to go through such suffering, the willing, I'm, I'm willing to give up my body is because I know I have a new model coming and I know that one day as followers of Jesus, Corinthians, that we are all going to go one-on-one, -on -one, each of us, with Jesus at the Bema. And in the Greek, in the, in the second Corinthians, the Greek he used actually used the word reveal. That each of us says, it is necessary, in the Greek it literally says, it is necessary for us to be revealed. What I want you to catch is what Paul is saying is that every one of us in this room is going to, at the end of this age, go one-on-one -on -one with King Jesus. And that our lives are gonna be revealed. And then we're gonna receive what's due us for what we've done in the body, good or bad. Now, I don't know about you, that makes me a little bit nervous. <laughs> Which leads to what Paul says next. 5.11, it made him nervous too. It says, since then we know what it is to what? Fear the Lord. Now sometimes people will say, oh, the fear of the Lord, it's not really fear, it's like reverence, it's awe. It is reverence, it is awe, but it's also fear. <laughs> you know, sometimes in Christian circles, we have shied away from the concept of good fear. And this has been to our hurt. I want you to think about this. I want, I want to think about, for some of you, you made the decision whether it was in high school or whether it was in college, you made a decision many times not to go out partying with your friends or playing on the weekends or you made, because you were, you wanted to get, you needed to pass a final or because you, you wanted to get into a particular college. And there's many times where you didn't do what you wanted to do because you had something greater in mind. And part of what drove that wasn't just a love of learning. 
part of what drove that was the fear that if I don't prepare, I won't be ready and I won't get this future that I desperately want. For some of you, you've been in a situation where you've been away on business at a, uh, in a foreign, city, foreign city or a distant city. Maybe you're married, maybe you're not. But let's say you're married and you're at the bar and you're approached by someone who's expressing interest and you know that if you say yes, you can spend the night together. But in those times, one of the reasons you've said no is not just because you love Jesus, it's not just because you love your spouse, but because you can see where that path would lead and you fear the consequences. For some of you, you've dug yourself out of debt. There was a time that you were high up your head in credit card debt and you worked hard and you took Financial Peace University and you, you did the snowball debt thing and, and you got rid of that debt and today you've learned how to save and it's brought peace into your life instead of frustration and fear. And every once in a while you're tempted to, go, to live beyond your means and to buy something on credit you can't afford. But when you do, one of the reasons you don't is because you're afraid, like you never wanna go back to those days again. And here's the thing, if I were to come up to you today and say, how do you feel about that fear that, led, that made you stay in and study when you wanted to go out? As you look back on that, do you see that's a good thing or a bad thing? As I said to you, how do you feel about that fear that kept you true to your marriage when you were so tempted? Do you feel good or bad? I would say, how do you feel about that fear of overspending? Do you resent that fear? You would tell me that fear is my friend because that fear helped me to do what I wanted to do in the deepest part of me. And men and women, there is a good fear. And there are so many reasons to listen and follow in our life. And I tell you, I listen and follow because I love him. I listen and follow because he's captured my heart. I listen and follow because I want my passion to him for him to grow. I listen and follow because I want to know him more and more. I listen and follow because I want to be transformed and be like Jesus. I listen and follow because I believe he knows better than I do and his wisdom is above my wisdom and he loves me and he has my best in mind. I listen and follow because I want to have an impact in my life. I don't want to waste my life. But can I tell you, I listen and follow because I don't want to be there and be found empty-handed. I don't want to get there on that day when that day the only thing that will matter is did I, leave to please the, did I live my life to please him? And it's the only thing that's going to matter on that day. And what happens on that day is going to impact not just that day, but all of eternity. And so I want to live my life this day for that day. And Paul says, since we know what it is to fear the Lord, then we persuade everyone else. And so I want to wrap up with one final question for you. It's there in your note sheet. And the question goes like this. Are you living this life for the next life? 
Are you living this life? Paul says, hey, I'm willing to go through suffering for Jesus. I'm willing to be beaten. I'm willing to fall because I know that that this is storing up for me an eternal weight of glory for that day. And so that's why I'm willing to do this. He says, because this life is short and the next life is long. And because this life, as hard as it is, is lightweight compared to the heavy weight of glory that's coming. He says, so I'm gonna live this day for that day and I'm trying to persuade everyone to come with me on this journey. And so the question is, which day are you living for? Are you living this day for that day? And in every area of your life, the core driving, is the core driving passion of your life like to please him, because out of that, all other decisions will flow. Or is there some other God or some other thing that, no, this is the driving force of my life. You know, when it comes to your relationships, when it comes to your finances, when it comes to your sexuality, when it comes to your gifts, when it comes to your time, when it comes to your resources, your values, your priorities, are you living this day for that day? And here's what I can tell you, that as one of your pastors, that I don't feel like I have this down at all. When I look at what Paul says about this light and momentary and what he went through, like I'm going, are you serious? I feel like I'm in the kindergarten of focus, right? Like he is so far above. So, so, but you know what? I feel like the Holy Spirit's teaching me. He's teaching me every day, all the time, this day for that day. Can I tell you, when I was, um, when I was coming back from Israel, it was in early April, and it was the first, uh, first day I was working on this weekend's message. And uh, so on the plane, it's a long plane ride back, so I spent about five hours in this passage uh, preparing for this message. And so just reading the passage, reflecting the passage, reading commentaries, and can I tell you that by the end of those five hours, I was so moved, I was so fired up, like I couldn't wait for this day. And one of the reasons I felt like the Holy Spirit was speaking to me and saying, Michael, as one of the pastors at Rocky Peak, this is your job. Your job is to keep this before my people. That this day is always about that day. And to make the future large for them. And do everything you can help them to see the reality of this coming. And can I tell you, since that time, this passage about all standing before the judgment seat of Christ. I've memorized this passage, and the Holy Spirit has brought it back to my mind time and time again, and I find myself praying it over my wife and praying it over my children and praying over my grandchildren that are so young. But as I pray this verse, that they would stand before the judgment seat of Christ and realize that they're so young now, but that day will come this day will lead to that day. And in that day, the only thing that will matter about my four-year-old granddaughter is this. And so my word to you, my challenge, is let's do this together. <laughs> let's stand against our culture. Let's live this day for that day. 
Let's challenge each other. Let's share what God's doing in our life. Let's, let's remove the blinders from each other's eyes that we would be together living this day for that day so that when our time comes, we'll be up there one-on-one. You won't be up there with your spouse. You know, some of us are thinking like, well, it won't be so bad. I'll be with my spouse. I'll get some credit. <laughs> no, they, you're not, you don't get to take an attorney before the Bema. You don't get to take a spouse. You don't get to take your kids. You don't get to take your pastor. <laughs> We're going to go one-on-one with King Jesus who loves us, loves us tremendously, but is an honest judge, and the truth will be revealed whether we lived our life and invested our life in things that mattered or whether we lived our lives for ourselves and wasted opportunities he's given us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Well, Father, we want to be prepared for the Bema. We want to be ready when that time comes that we would hear those famous words, well done, good, faithful servant. And so, Father, we pray that as we process this, as we think through our lives, Father, I pray that we would not do the thing that we often are tending to, is just get all worried and and kind of paranoid, but that instead we would just be honest with you and just say, Father, is there, is there anything in my life you want to address? And we would just listen and follow one day at a time because we know that as we listen and follow, we'll be transformed and we will be ready when that day comes. And so we pray, Lord, that as we reflect on this future that's coming, as we bring you our tithes, our gifts, our offerings, we pray you use these to build a place that teaches everyone to live this day for that day. So together we're there and ready and prepared. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Let's stand together.